Welcome back to Cause Talk Radio by Rashpixel.fm, the podcast that shows do-gooders, nonprofits, and businesses how to build win-win partnerships that raise money and change the world. This podcast is brought to you by Engage for Good and Selfish Giving. You can find full show notes and additional resources for today's episode at engageforgood.com and selfishgiving.com. Now, on to today's episode. Today on Cause Talk Radio, Tony Hollingsworth has over 30 years of experience working with companies, governments, and foundations at the intersection of communications, media, and pop culture. His credits range from conceiving and producing the global media campaign that reached 600 million people and repositioned Nelson Mandela from black terrorist leader to black leader, to consulting for the U.S. White House on a public campaign in a response to 9-11. Tony's newest endeavor, set to launch in March of 2020, is called the Listen Campaign and aims to raise $1 billion over 10 years to support vulnerable and disadvantaged children around the globe by mobilizing celebrities, artists, and media, as well as corporations and broadcasters around the globe. This 52-week campaign has an ambitious goal of reaching 500 million people in 60 countries, bringing much-needed attention to this issue, as well as resources to support programs with nonprofit partners that are scalable and replicable. Today on Cause Talk Radio, Joe and I talked to Tony Hollingsworth to get a sneak peek into the Listen campaign and what's in store for 2020 for this ambitious effort. Welcome to Cause Talk Radio, Tony. So you are getting ready to launch a massive global campaign in 2020 called the Listen Campaign, which we're going to dive into a little bit more today. That is going to bring attention, awareness, and funds to the 1 billion vulnerable and disadvantaged children around the globe. I wonder if you would start us off today by telling us the story behind this campaign. Where did this idea come from and why are you so passionate about it? Well, okay, so you have to go into my background a little bit to see where it came from. And I've produced nine of the world's largest global media campaigns in the past, which started back in 1988 with the Nelson Mandela 70th birthday tribute broadcast in 100 countries for most of them taking the full 11 and a half hours, involving 83 artists. It was there to demand Mandela's release from prison, but it was also there to reposition him to stop the news on television and radio of those organizations that were carrying the big live event, to stop them reporting him as a black terrorist leader and to transform him into a black leader. As you can get a black leader out of prison, but you can't get a black terrorist leader out of prison. That was the first of these big things that I did. I then did nine others in a row and retired. Wow. And um, so I did nine of these very, very large, complicated campaigns on television, on radio, in press, and nowadays in social media, online, etc. But when you do these things, it is 90% of the work is beneath the watermark. It's an iceberg. Only 10% is seen by the public. But you can't have the 10% unless you do the 90%. And the 90% for most of these campaigns has involved 52 two-minute news items, a a documentary series, a business-to-consumer campaign, a business-to-business campaign, etc., that gets you to these enormous aggregated audiences of about 500 million people per time. So if you do nine in nine years or nine in 10 years, as I did, 
you can and you sh- you you can afford to and you should retire for a bit. So I did. <laughs> I became acutely aware as I was bringing up my children that they were blessed in a way. They were having a good middle class upbringing in London, and. On one evening, I was carrying um, one of my children around who wasn't sleeping on the on my shoulder, listening to BBC World Service news, and I listened to a news item, uh, which was an interviewer talking to a young mother in Africa, whose baby had just died from diarrhoea. A ten cent sachet would have stopped that baby dying. The baby I was carrying around on my shoulder only had to cough the wrong way, and he had a doctor looking after him. So at that point, I thought, well, if that isn't one of the biggest inequities in the whole world, I don't know what is. And if I ever come out of retirement, then I should be creating an annual and global media campaign that would help vulnerable and disadvantaged children around the world. My kids grew up, they got to being teenagers and said, Dad, you're boring, please go back to work. (laughs) (laughs) Joe and I can relate to that all too well, right, Joe? (laughs) So I then started putting together a team of people that could think about how you create an annual and global media campaign for vulnerable and disadvantaged children. And how can you do it in such a way that it is not only, as we've sort of done in the past, for the developed world, but actually is coming from and for the developing world as well. So how can you make sure that this annual global media campaign fits India, with its 1.3 billion people in it, or fits South Africa and Southern Africa with its 700 million people in it, or fits Latin America, or fits, of course, the USA and the other G7 countries, but we sort of knew that bit. (laughs) So that's, we've sat about that and said, okay, let's first of all describe the problem. What are we trying to address? What, what is, what is in, in our, in our, in our gaze, so to speak. Looking at the statistics then of vulnerable and disadvantaged children, it appears that we have 1 billion children, that's nearly Nearly one-seventh of the world's population are children under the age of 19 who are either severely disadvantaged or vulnerable or both. And by severely disadvantaged, we aren't, don't mean a little bit. We, we mean you know, that they are suffering, suffering, 700 million of them are suffering multidimensional poverty. Not are they just financially poor, their household financially poor, but they've probably got almost no education, almost no health care, almost et cetera, et cetera. Now, these are enormous figures. There's only just over 7 billion people in the world, but 1 billion of them are below the age of 19 and in these very difficult conditions, having problems with education, with shelter, with health, with hunger, et cetera. So it seemed to me that this was as big a problem as it gets that you could focus in on, but it was focused. It was about children. And and one of the really powerful reasons to look at the well-being of children is that you are actually looking at the future. The, the problems that we're baking in, if you like, with the condition of vulnerable and disadvantaged children at the moment are problems that will exist for the next 60, 70 years. You know, those children that are not getting enough nutrition 
and enough mental stimulation in early childhood development for the first thousand days will remain stunted in growth and stunted in mental capacity for the rest of their lives. <laughs> These aren't things that are sort of, um, they're not light. You are actually looking at a long-term future, even though if you're just looking at the next generation, you're looking at the future. It seemed to me to be a very, very important issue. And it is focused on children, but it also means that you have to look at poverty, you have to look at disease, you have to look at war and conflict, you have to look at exploitation and racism. And you have to, nowadays, you also have to be looking at climate change and the impact that that's having on the next generations as well. Yeah, well, it sounds like, uh, uh, Tony, you did a really good job listening. Um, you know, because that's where you got this idea originally from listening to that MPI story. Is that why you call it the Listen Campaign? Is that you're encouraging people to do what you started doing and, um, and, and that has taken hold? Well, there are two sort of levels in which that Listen works. Um, the first is we want people to listen to the needs and rights of the world's most vulnerable and disadvantaged children. But that's a rather academic, that's a sort of high-level international organization's way of looking at things. Right. What most people need to do to get into these issues is actually listen to the stories of children talking about the problems they face and those same children telling us of the projects that have helped them through that problem or solve that problem. And that's the main method of communication. We're looking at the problems children face and solutions to those problems. The whole of the children's charity sector isn't able to do this because they're locked in a box. They're not able to do this sort of communication because the world judges charities on how little they spend outside of project work. Right what the press often call overheads, right. also includes communications. So they spend money, they have to spend the minimum they can on communication, so they spend it on survival. So to give you an illustration, I was coming back on a tube train after a New Year's Eve party two years ago, and there was an advert in front of me that said, please text this number to give three pounds to buy a Syrian refugee child a blanket tonight. And that's an absolutely typical bit of communication by the children's charity sector. The reason it caught my attention is that in the month beforehand, I'd been talking to two organizations handling Syrian refugee children in Lebanon and Jordan, and both of them had said to me that on average, they treat the problem as 12 years long. That it starts with children coming often with grandma and uncle, not the full family, and that they are severely traumatized, they have health problems, they're probably malnourished, but once you get them through that immediate part and you've got them into the camp, and they are camps, and you've got them fed, you're into the longer-term problems of education, you are still dealing with traumatized families, but they're dysfunctional. What you sooner into are all the problems that you get out of having built a community of 100% unemployed, traumatized, dysfunctional families. So you get into gangs, you get into drug abuse, you get into abuse, you get into all of these other problems as well. So that's the nature of the problem. And these two organizations could tell me how they're solving these problems over 12 years. They could tell me 
But the advert that was running said, please give three pounds to buy a Syrian refugee child a blanket tonight. And that's, that's, the, that's the bit. So we're missing the stories. We're missing the world for 50 years has not been told the detail of the problems or given examples of the solutions. So that, that's what our campaign is there to do, is to provide these nitty-gritty stories. Here's the problem, here's the solution. And the way we do it is we, filmed with the, we film with the children talking about their problems and the projects talking about the solutions, but then we fly in a star to complete that film so that that star is being told. They're not talking for the child. The child is telling them the problems and the child is telling them the solution that the project has given them. So it's a child's voice that we're listening to telling us of the problem and the solution. We then wrap that round with a bit of context. And those are, the, if you like, the nitty gritty stories that we're putting out there. Our theory is if we can show the world the problems and solutions, so show the problem and in the same story celebrate the solution project by project by project by project, if we can seed the world with evidence-based success stories of these projects, then we think four things happen. The public on seeing evidence of what works give more in donations. The corporate sector, who like to put their CSR money into areas where the public already knows what good looks like, that's right. We'll follow us because we'll have shown the public what the good looks like. Another point is that the public will be better informed about what aid should we do it, what it's to be used for. Not that we're giving governmental aid, but we're doing project by project. They're better informed about the problems and solutions. And the fourth point, which is really important, is as we have built this campaign to work in the poorest parts of the world as well as the richest, it means that those people are able to see a problem and a solution and probably a problem that they've got in their back garden, their town, their state, etc. And they'll push for the results as well, mm. which, is, which is a very different way of doing it. So seeding the world with evidence-based success stories of scalable and replicable projects <laughs> is sort of the way the NGO sector would talk about this. But we're doing it using 160 creative artists each year. You're working with a variety of nonprofit organizations and you're talking about programs that are scalable and replicable. How are you determining who is scalable and replicable? And are you asking them to work together? Because solving a a challenge like childhood poverty and, and all of the challenges that you're talking about with children around the world are, as you've just explained, very, very complex problems. Are you requiring that they work together? Are you just trying to create a critical mass of, of support or what What specifically? We're not requiring that they work together, but we're choosing projects that are, so we're choosing organizations that can apply for project grants. So we're not funding just the organization. They're applying for project grants in which they are saying, we've already proven that we can do this. And now we want a grant to be able to scale up or replicate. Looking generally, when we did our original bit of research, it looked as if there were no problems in the world that children suffer from that we don't already know the solutions to. The problem is not whether we have the solution. The problem is we're not talking about them. We're not talking about the problem. We're not talking about the solution. And we're just not doing enough. We're not scaling up. So to give you an example, Aisha, she's a 12-year-old girl in South Africa. She's been orphaned by AIDS, and she is bringing up her younger brother and sister. 
We are thinking about giving a grant to the organization that's helping her through all of that process. And we would then sort of, that little story that she tells to a star, we will then put that in context. And the context there is Aisha is one of 8.2 million children heavily impacted by AIDS, orphaned or heavily impacted by AIDS around the world. Mm -hmm. Only 5% are getting any help. Now, it's not that we don't know how to help them. <laughs> right. We're not scaling. Right. We're not replicating. There are lots of projects that you know we they know they know how to work. So we're choosing projects that are proven. We're applying for grants to scale up or replicate what they do, and can report back on the impact that those projects would have on the lives of children. But we're making sure that we do it across a whole set of areas. So it's. It's looking at children that are suffering from poverty, which is a very general description, from disease, from war and conflict, from exploitation and racism, and pollution and climate change. Those are our broad pillars. Some projects, of course, touch four of those points. Some will touch two of those points, etc. This campaign is really ambitious. You're shooting for, you know, a billion dollars for children in 60 countries. Why not just focus on South Africa? instead of doing a global campaign? So the billion dollars in terms of donations is, uh, is what we expect over 10 years. It's not a, not a one-year figure. Scale is absolutely important in the media world. So if I want to produce something that has serious impact, let's say in the United States, then I need a major event as part of that, which we're staging at the LA Coliseum. I need a broadcaster as part of that, which is ABC. If I'm, if I'm making a documentary series to make it economically worth making, I need to make a documentary series that will go across 50 countries, not one country, but 50 countries. So it actually is in, you know, to produce a media campaign that hits a country is seriously inefficient. It, it isn't the way the media work works. When Disney makes, um, or Sony makes Spider-Man, they make it for 20 years of exploitation in a hundred <laughs> countries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the economics of the media industry. Unless you play that economic game and you are at scale, you just, it, it won't work. You're, you're, you'll, be, you'll be making a loss uh, on the media company side of things, if nothing else, but you'll also probably be producing very bad content. That's fascinating. And the other thing I was wondering and was, was going to ask that now... I feel like part of my question has already been answered with your answer you just had about um, going global with this effort. But I'm, I'm curious about companies and brands being involved and what your vision for that is. And I guess my commentary is just that, you know, by having, by virtue of this being a global effort, I could definitely see companies wanting to get involved and mm -hmm. attach their brand to, you know, to this effort because it is a global effort. But, but what's your vision for getting the corporates of the world engaged? So the modern day of, the modern day media is is structured in a rather different way than we had in the eighties nineties um, the uh, the noughties etc. It now very much is that a lot of media is global, and what differentiates it is not a national boundary but the language. We're making sure that our campaign is running in at least eleven languages that we produce. And then we're having other media partners put that campaign into other languages. So we won't put it into Norwegian, but the Norwegian broadcaster will put the campaign 
into Norwegian, a 13-week campaign running on into Norwegian. Our media partner, our broadcast partner in uh, India is broadcasting in four languages, Hindi, Tamil, Telugu, English. That gives uh, makes sure that we get an opportunity to talk to 65% of the Indian population, which is 1.3 billion people. So we're dividing ourselves up by languages more than we are by nations nowadays. Um, but our, our sponsorship packages are primarily around territories. So there are sponsors, there are sponsors for India and there are sponsors for the United States. There are sponsors for South Africa and there are sponsors for Mexico, etc. Because for them to get good value out of our proposition, they need they need us to deliver a package that is strong in media, 30 uh-huh. second spot stings and bumpers, in content, and we give them the right to use under rules the images of, of all 160 creative artists and the children that are in the campaign, of sponsorship and promotion and advertising rights, of hospitality rights, a whole set of rights that they need. And what we found is that if you sell these things nationally, so you have sell in the US to the US sponsors, you have a much shorter decision-making tree than if you try and do a global deal, but also you're maximizing value. So. Um, if we were, for instance, to um, to sell to a, um, an American bank as one of our sponsors or bring them on board as a marketing partner, if I threw in the rest of the world, I'd be devaluing what we've got. We have a bank in India. We're one of the top banks in India that find us a very valuable proposition. And they would find they'll pay a lot more for the Indian sponsorship rights, marketing partner rights, and CSR rights than the American bank would do. So we're, we're, we're putting together packages, but they're very, very strong packages of 30-second spots, stings, and bumpers. So we deliver back to our sponsors as much media as they're actually paying the price for. Plus, we give them the rights to artists' images and children's images and sponsorship rights and content rights and hospitality and promotion rights. So, Tony, how much, you know, and when it comes to sponsors and corporate partners, how much will you allow them to be embedded in the content? I mean, one of the things that my family have been watching is on National Geo. Uh, there's a new show there called Activate. And it's a combination of stories that uh, people that are taking on big issues hosted by celebrities. And P&G actually has a point during this show where P&G specifically talks about what they're doing and it's embedded right into the show. Uh, will you go to that type of extent with your content or is it more the traditional way of before, during and after? We, we have so our vanilla package mm-hmm. includes 30 second spots, stings and bumpers, which is the before, during and after. But if a corporation has an activity that is a, can be a legitimate part of our campaign, mm-hmm then we can weave them into that story as well. Cool. But it isn't a question, we're not looking to weave if they're not legitimate. Mm-hmm. I don't mean they're illegitimate. Yeah, but right. I mean, if they don't You're looking have, for authenticity. Right. Exactly. So, you know, you could imagine that sponsors that might be backing already um, No Kid Hungry would, um, would have a story that's quite a legitimate involvement. Yeah, and I, and I haven't sort of pointed out that as well. 
In choosing projects around the world, we've chosen 36 that are projects, children's charity projects that we're going to feature no matter whether you're watching this campaign in Africa or India or the United States. But then we're choosing another eight projects that are just for the USA and another eight projects that are just for India and another eight that are just for... So there's, um, in, the, in, the, in the model that we built for this to, so it will travel around the world, basically central production, if you like, is producing 70% of all the campaign's content and then national or regional is producing 30% of the content. Sometimes, though, I mean, if you're watching the campaign in India, the film stars that they have going to visit their children's projects will be bigger stars in India than the international film stars. That right. <laughs> and attract a bigger audience. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Exactly. So if they sort of, uh, sometimes in most of these places, you know, the Latin stars will be the big stars in Latin America and the others will be, uh, you know, you know, in the, far more in the background and the Indian stars, et cetera. But well, that, Tony, I, I want to mention to you that I am a huge star in Boston. I knew he was going to pitch himself as a star. If you need me to step in, <laughs> I'm kind of a, kind of a, a big well-known deal. entity in here Newton, in Boston. <laughs> yeah, and especially in west of Boston. And, you know, not too far south, but not too far north either. But, you know, I'm just, I'm putting myself out there because I think this campaign sounds great and you're going to need some big time influencers. Yeah, as another, as another sort of distinguishing point about what we're doing, not only are we about the nitty-gritty, looking at the problems, celebrating the solutions, but another really strong differentiator is that we are about creativity. We are asking the musicians that are getting involved to create new arrangements, new versions, carefully rehearsed, not put together quickly, of classic songs the world already knows. We are asking the visual artists to create visual art for the campaign. We are asking novelists to write short stories for the campaign. And we're asking these film stars to go on location and use their acting skills, if you like, to draw out the story so that child is telling the most powerful story that that child can tell about the problems they've suffered and the solutions. So it is very strongly about creativity. And we think we're going to have wonderful content that comes from all of that as well. So it's not treating stars as celebrities, it's treating stars as creative artists. How exactly will funds be raised? We were talking about a billion dollars over 10 years, which is quite ambitious. So where do, where are those funds coming from? So 100 to 200 million dollars per year. Let's say the 100 million dollar mark in the first year. So most of that is predicted to come from the audience's response to the main fundraising broadcast in the 13th week of the campaign. Okay. And as I say, that, um, that is in some countries like the United States, three hours long. In other countries, it's eight hours long. <laughs> so but that's a main sort of fundraising broadcast. And the public are responding then to the campaign. They've had 13 weeks of campaign content by the time they get there. 62 two-minute news items, 13 five-minute films, 13 24-minute films, a feature documentary, various promotions leading up to this um, global fundraising broadcast. And we expect that probably $70 million of $100 million comes in response to that, but from an audience that is across 100 countries. And then the other $30 million comes in over the rest of the year 
as people are still understanding the campaign, being stimulated by seeing the stories of the problems and solutions, and are continuing to donate for the next 39 weeks before we get to the next year's campaign. Tony, three words for you. White savior complex. Do you think people will say that about this campaign? Well, so if you take me out of the picture, because I never appear in my own things, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, um, if you're watching this in India, the front of this campaign is Indian film stars, Indian musicians, mm-hmm. Indian visual artists, Indian novelists, and the back, if you like, at the back end of it all, the common content is international stars. So when you look at it in terms of in terms of the complexion, if you like, it changes depending on where you are in the world. But thirty percent of the the content by length is indigenous content, and seventy percent is common content. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the artists that are involved, eighty of them will be internationally known artists. That doesn't mean they're all from America or Britain, but internationally recognized artists. 80 of them are that. Half of the musicians are quarter film stars, one eight novelists, one eight writers. But the 20 are coming from India. 20 are coming from Africa. 20 are coming from Latin America. And 20 are coming from Middle East and North Africa. So in terms of creative artists, it's half and half, if you like, the developing world and the developed world. But the other point that, to go into your other point on a different level, in terms of complexion, in terms of artists, in terms of then of the change that we expect to happen, we believe that if you can show the world, if you can seed the world with scalable, replicable projects that work, you show them the problem, you show them the solution, then we say that there are these four ways, four things that happen. Civil society that can afford to give more will give more. The corporate sector, knowing that the public already knows what good looks like, will put more of their CSR into that sector. The aid budgets should be better protected because the public are better informed of the problems and the solutions. But the fourth point, and this is really important going to what you're talking about, is that people in areas of the world where these problems exist, now that may be in the south of Chicago or it may be in Rajasthan, it may be in Botswana or it may be in the favelas of Brazil, But if they are seeing in quite short, powerful little films, here is the problem and here is the solution, they will push for them. That's not through us. Mm -hmm. They will push for them. They will either push a local company to sponsor it or a local authority to do it, or they'll create the the solution themselves, or they'll ask government to do it. I'll give you an example, a very quick one, if I may. There's a project in China that we're thinking of giving a grant to that works in the poorest parts of rural China. A lot of China is still very, very poor. They work in villages, and they noticed that the girls are not going to school and the boys are going to school. The girls are entitled to go to school. (laughs) School leaves and has lunch at it, but the girls aren't going. So they said, okay, let's go and talk to the parents to see why they aren't sending the girls to school. They went to their houses uh, in the village. They knew the village, um, but the parents weren't there because the parents are working in the factories. So they were talking to grandma and grandpa, who are peasant farmers, most of them illiterate, and they were saying, why aren't you sending the girls to school? And they say, "Um, it's to do with home economics. We need the girls to stay at home, to feed the pigs, to feed the chickens, to make the evening stew. This organization went away and thought, "Ah, okay, that seemed to be a marginal point. (laughs) 
<laughs> right on the edge. I wonder if we can influence it. So they said, okay, let's try this. In this village, there are only 30 girls. We'll try and we'll offer, if the girls go to school half an hour early, they'll get two eggs and rice for breakfast. Hmm. And all the girls went to school and they're still going to school and the boys joined them half an hour afterwards having breakfast at home. Now, that's a little story. Mm -hmm. I told it to you, so it's a little bit longer than we've been making it on a video, but that's a little story. Here's a problem, here's a solution. I told that story to an NGO working in rural, rural Mexico, and they said, that's interesting. We have exactly the same problems in our villages. We'll mm -hmm. try an eggs and rice for breakfast. It's really easy to try. Most villages only have 30, 20, 30, so you can do it in small scale. And so that's one of these examples. Have If you can show people, and I know that's a really simple story to tell, but if you show people the problem and solution, then, then they're very likely to do it themselves as well if they can. I, th I mean, I think the other point to that, Joe, and I think it's a, I think it's a good question because you're, you're seeing that a lot, you know, self-serving white people going to save the brown people of the world and posting it to their Instagram stories. But I think with the Listen campaign, at least how Tony's has been talking about it, I mean, the whole name is the Listen campaign because they want stories of these children told in their own words. So if they're able to showcase that versus, you know, celebrity holding brown child saving them or what what have you like if they're there as more ambassadors to kind of solicit their stories you know hopefully it'll escape some of that that criticism well, it's, you're absolutely right and you know but the, the story you may be listening to may be a story that in fact was to, told to Shahrukh Khan, one of the major stars in India <laughs> was told to him in Hindi and you're listening into into an English translation <laughs> So, but it's not about uh, him, I guess is my point, right? No, it's, it's, about, not about, it's not about him. No, it's yeah. about the child's story. He is there to listen. Right. Right. Now it's mm -hmm. quite hard to it's quite hard to get film stars to understand. That. <laughs> it's not about them. But, 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 <laughs> but when you get down to you and you say, look, you remember when you went to drama college? What were really the two most difficult things to act? Smelling and listening. Mm. So I'm actually giving you the job of acting and listening. But I'm also giving you the job of pulling that story's that 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 child's story out by asking some questions. We may not hear your questions; we may be just there to listen. But that's the way we're doing it. So we think that it is built in such a way that it is coming as much from the developing world as it is from the developed world. Um, that's what that's that's how we've tried to that's how we've tried to create it. And as you say, it's the children that are the main storytellers in all of this. It's not a CNN presenter. It's not a star talking for them. It's them talking. So where and when can we expect to hear more about the Listen campaign, Tony? Well, I think we're going to be sort of putting out some bulletins between now and and the new year as we as we confirm all our different players in this global media platform, which is a platform that I'm confident will reach 500 million people. So wow. this is this is a this is a in a, this is a traditional media platform that is going okay for thirteen five minutes for thirteen twenty four minutes for a feature documentary for a global fundraising broadcast in traditional media which is media that you can plan for i.e. network television in these different countries I think will reach five hundred million people in addition to that. We will have all of the stuff that you get from social media and from streaming. But that for us is an additional. That's not, 
that's not the primary um, the, the primary planable audience. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Cause Talk Radio. Is there any place online that our our listeners can learn more about this campaign as it's rolling out? Right. So at the moment, there's just a little business to business website. Nothing. We go public on March the 31st next year, leading up to a global broadcast on June the 27th next year. But at the moment, there's just a little business to business site, which is www.listencampaign.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining us. And we definitely appreciate hearing about the Listen campaign before it even makes its first public appearance. So thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you, you, Tony. Nice to talk to you. And no doubt I'll call upon you when I get to Boston. Absolutely. Perfect. So how's that all going to come together? This is the guy that did the Nelson Mandela campaign. I mean, if he can, if he if he can't pull it off, I don't know who can. Yeah, and it, it sounds ambitious. That, this is like a huge campaign, now, right? You know, it's like it's huge. It's huge. I do. I do think it's fascinating, and I'm I'm so glad you asked him about the um, the global nature of that campaign versus you know rolling out in one country at a time because it does seem very ambitious but if you think about it i mean it, he has a point it, this is a media campaign um and it makes sense to kind of do this across countries um and you know quite frankly i expect it'll be more successful in some countries than others i mean i think that would be a natural but i like the idea too of what he's trying to achieve by using local talent local influences local celebrities because that's how it has to work absolutely yeah right you know in terms of um you know in terms of people connecting with it on the ground level i do think the other thing that you brought up that was really fascinating was just highlighting what companies are, are are already doing to support. Um, I think that is a really huge opportunity because, you know, maybe 20 years ago, if, if they had rolled something like this out, I don't know that there would have been as many companies that are doing really interesting things around the globe. But there are a lot of really interesting things happening as it relates to childhood poverty um, that are being supported by really interesting corporate efforts. So I think that's a huge opportunity for them to round out the corporate perspective and showcase things that are working that are being funded by companies in a way that makes sense for their brand. I mean, if that's not sustainable, I'm not sure what is. So, I mean, that's kind of the whole. And I love what Tony said, and I have to go back and listen to it again, but I love when he said that uh, companies are attracted to things that people have already confirmed as good. And he had a much better way of saying it than I did just now. But I thought that was a great way of thinking about why companies get involved. And, you know, it's interesting how we talk about companies and it's the first priority here on Cause Talk Radio. But it's interesting to note that in many instances, companies come last to campaigns. Oh, right? for they sure. Come after people and individuals have confirmed that something is worthwhile of support. So in many ways, while we look to companies to lead, they're also following. And and this is definitely a case of that. Companies are not leading on this one. I mean, this is a media campaign, as he's made very clear, Um, unless you consider a media company, you know, the company in this situation. Um, But I do. Yeah, I do think there's uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens just because I do think there will be lots of companies who are like, hey, we're doing good work on the ground. Like, let's showcase our nonprofit partner or what happened or what have you. But um, the only thing that makes me a little bit nervous is that, 
you know, the reason that they say donate, you know, tax three dollars to give a blanket to a Syrian refugee is because that's really easy for people to understand. And it makes them feel like, oh, I can do that. I can tax three dollars like this is one little thing that I can do, because when you present, I mean, childhood poverty and all of the issues he was talking about, those are complex, very complicated issues. So, yes, showcasing some of the stories um, and some of the solutions, I think, is a smart way to it to attack it. But I I just wonder if it's going to feel overwhelming to people, you know, if they're following it closely and they see every episode and they're like, oh, my gosh, what am I supposed to do about this? I mean, I just it gets too big. That's right. That's right. Does it seem too systemic that people become overwhelmed? And, you know, like he was saying about that at birth, though, and, you know, nonprofits tend to lead with this strongest emotional message, right? They're like, this is what, you know, this is what it's about. So they get people's attention about like, hey, this is about giving a refugee a blanket tonight, which is something we can relate to. Exactly. It's it's the human experience. Everyone knows what it's like to not have a blanket if you're cold or to sleep at night, right? Like it's um it's interesting because the uh Laura Fruitman was at the Engage for Good conference this year that you were at, um, talking about the right to shower, which is the Unilever product that they actually launched this um right to shower mission before they launched launched these bath products, but it was all about essentially it's a homeless service, but it's giving people the right to a shower, which everyone can relate to. So it's homelessness as an issue, but it's taking one little piece of it that everyone can relate to. And it's easier to talk about something that everyone can relate to versus like, oh, the problem with homelessness, it seems very big and complex and like you can't move the needle on it at all. But I can give a shower to someone, sign me up. Like I get I get that. And you know, and, and I mean, it's something I often emphasize too. persuasion occurs through identification, right? We have to be able to identify with what the person is talking about. And I think that's a great example of that. Yeah, I mean, I do think they're trying to get at that with these vignettes. They're showing stories and like really tangible examples examples of solutions. So hopefully people will be able to kind of see like, okay, here's a little piece of this problem and here's a solution that worked in India or Brazil or China. Um, And I can get behind that. Like that seems like a great project. So, I mean, I think that's their intent is to kind of take that exactly what we were just talking about and blow it up on massive scale. So we wish them, we wish them all the best of luck. Absolutely. That'd be a wonderful campaign. Yeah. Yeah. No, it seems a and huge hat tip to Scott Bowden for connecting us with Tony because it just is, seems like a really phenomenal effort that's go, everyone's going to be talking about in 2020. And you heard it here first on Cause Talk Radio here, folks. That's right. So when it's a big success, they'll say it all. It's all because of Cause Talk Radio. Talk. <laughs> I, I knew it's about Scott it Bowden, of course. Of, and Scott Bowden. <laughs> <They're> fabulous. <laughs> 